Today's New Testament reading is from Matthew 12, 22-37. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom, you, whom do you, sons, cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if, it's, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The word of the Lord. What ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, especially to, to celebrate the sacrament of baptism. And, we do have a, a cupcake reception after the service downstairs, and not only is, is this a great time to fellowship, but this is a great opportunity to, to welcome these children into this covenant community. And today we, we continue our series in the Gospel of, of Matthew, and before we, we look at that text, let us come together before the Lord in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, your church, and then in it, we find your Son, Jesus Christ, and you give us the gift of the gospel. We do pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this text, and that through your Spirit, you would minister it to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, we are faced with the demonic, which we have been faced with many times in Matthew, and this might strike you as, as silly, especially in the year 2022. And we, we've talked about this a few times, but as Columbia University professor Andrew Del Bonco writes, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Diabanco's not a Christian, but he's pointing out that the profound evil that we see in the world, it can't be explained by mere secular resources. 
He's telling us that we need something more than an appeal to conditioning or improper socialization or unhealthy psychological situations to explain things like mass shootings, to explain things like the atrocities we've heard about in Ukraine, and of course, to explain the horrible concentration camps and genocides of the last century. You might call the demonic silly, but you can't say it's not serious. But there's more here. Because while this passage gives us resources to explain the evil that we see in the world, its main thrust is actually giving us resources to explain the good that we all long for. To dismiss demons is to dismiss an adequate explanation for evil. But as we'll see, to dismiss God is actually to dismiss an adequate explanation for good. Yes, Jesus heals this man from a demon-possessed condition. He is blind and mute. But the thrust of this passage is actually Jesus' confrontation with the spiritual blindness and the spiritual muteness of the Pharisees, which, as we will see, is no less demonic. The Pharisees can neither see nor speak the truth. The Pharisees explain the healing by saying that it's only by the prince of demons that Jesus is here casting out demons. They tell the crowd that Satan is casting out Satan. They present Jesus' work as a kind of ploy, a false demonstration of power to falsely earn the trust of the crowd. However, Christ's words here, they bring us back to our senses. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus is telling the Pharisees that their claim is doing much, much more than attacking his own ministry. He's telling them, you are actually attacking any and all ministry. Your claim is attacking any good efforts against evil. It's attacking goodness itself. The Pharisees here witness something very good, and yet they call it very bad. And this move, Jesus warns us, leaves us with no good. When they attack Jesus for casting out demons, their own casting out of demons is called into question. And if we have eyes to see, moves like this are rampant in our own modern culture. It's like, telling you, it's like someone telling you every statement of truth is really just a power claim. Well, then that statement is a power claim. It's like someone telling you that there is no truth. Well, then that statement is untrue. In each case, the person is sawing off the branch that they themselves are standing on. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. If casting out demons is no longer a cause for rejoicing, if it's no longer a proof of goodness, then there is no sure ground on which we can stand. If the defeat of Satan is not evidence of the kingdom of God, then Beelzebul, which literally means something like Lord of the Flies, or Lord of Filth, or maybe even Lord of Excrement, then the Lord of Excrement can't be all that different from the Lord of Heaven and Earth. 
And so Jesus is warning the Pharisees that they are falling into an ethical and a spiritual vertigo where there is neither down nor up. And we can go deeper here. Jesus tells us, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is attacking a kind of supposed neutrality, and he does so by way of gathering and scattering imagery. Jesus presents us with, with gathering as the paradigm of good, the paradigm for his own ministry, and scattering as the paradigm of evil, the paradigm of what the demons are doing. And philosopher D.C. Schindler, he, he's very helpful on this score. He points out that the Greek word diabolo, from which we get the word diabolos, devil, well, it has the connotation of setting things at odds with one another, of tearing them apart, tearing them asunder. It can mean to set at variance, to slander, to misrepresent, to deceive by false accusations, to divide, to set things at odds or set them, tear them apart. And all of these are certainly apt descriptions of Satan, of the accuser of the great enemy of God and his good purposes. Schindler points out that the diabolo, the work of the devil, of diabolos, stands against the paradigm of God, collecting, joining, uniting, and coming together. A key aim of the devil is to divide, to pull apart, to scatter. In contrast, a key aim of God is to join, to unite, to gather. Either you gather with Christ or you scatter with Satan. And scattering is exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. But notice how it is that they do it. They do it through what they say and what they attempt to make the crowds believe. They're much more concerned with public opinion than they are with the truth. Notice that the Pharisees, they don't respond directly to the healing of the man. What they respond to is the crowd speaking about the healing. After the healing, we read, All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul." the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. They don't seek to deny what happened. They actually take a very different and more drastic approach. They seek to undo the basic categories of good and evil. Yes, this man was healed, but what seems an act of good was really an act of evil. What seems an act of God was really an act of Satan. And so the Pharisees scatter. The good act of casting out demons can no longer be united, collected, and joined under the banner of goodness, under the banner of God. Jesus' casting out demons is bad, but ours is good. No longer is it a straightforward good to cast out demons. And so by implication, they're saying it would have been better for the man, in some sense, to stay under this demonic oppression. It would have been better had Jesus simply left him in his condition, rather than working the even greater evil of casting out Satan by Satan. And so, in some way, the Pharisees are actually justifying 
the oppression of the devil in this man's life. And so the Pharisees have changed up to down, north to south, good to bad. This is scattering because it is nonsense. There's no cohesion to it. There's no cohesion, no constancy between their ethics and their thoughts. There's no way to bring together what they're calling bad, Jesus is casting out, and what they're calling good, their own casting out. This is not sophistication, but sophistry. This is not a complex intellectualization, but complete incoherence. And we have to ask ourselves, are we doing much better here? Are we also scattering? For instance, philosopher Charles Taylor points out that the modern West finds itself in a strange situation. Never before have we more forcefully advocated justice and universal benevolence, yet at the same time, never before have we been so unable to give any substantial answer as to why we should actually be just and benevolent. Our metaphysics, what we think reality is, and our ethics, what we should do, are scattered one from the other, torn completely asunder. Without God, the universe is only a mere accident. Without God, we ourselves are only a mere accident. Without God, the only reason that we are here is because our ancestors got the best of weaker species. We are here only by a meaningless and accidental process that culminated in the strong eating the weak. And yet somehow we believe that we have a moral and ethical obligation to serve and to love and to seek justice for the weak and the marginalized. Somehow we feel obligated to do something that stands completely against how we got here in the first place. Casting out demons there is bad. Casting out demons here is good. Eating the weak there is good, how we got here, Eating the weak there is bad, what we should do. There's no coherence. There's no constancy between reality and ethics here. There's only scattering. In losing demons, we lose the ability to explain evil. But in losing God, we lose the ability to explain good. Like the Pharisees, we find ourselves in a kind of intellectual and ethical vertigo with neither up nor down, and so we find ourselves scattered. We become a mess of contradictions that sets asunder the deepest parts of who we are. One day, we find ourselves exhilarated by the thought of ourselves as mere accidents of the universe. We rejoice that there's no true or proper way of life because that means that we can do whatever we want to do. But this is just too small of a world for us to live in. A life devoted to my own personal fulfillment is a very flat world. And it also becomes a very sad world. One day you will have to retire from your job and you will be forgotten. One day your body will break down and your health will deteriorate and you will die. One day your beauty will fade and all of the attention that you once received will be lavished upon others. 
One day, every day, will be more difficult and painful than the day before. One day, this meaningless universe will take away whatever you have made your primary object of personal fulfillment, whether or not it ever actually gave it to you for the brief cosmic second that you were accidentally alive. The best you can hope for is a quick instant of having among a great narrative of loss. The best that you can hope for is only having your heart broken and not ultimately destroyed. And on top of all this, we still scream for an ethics of human rights and justice that a meaningless and accidental universe simply cannot support. We are a mess of contradictions and we are scattered. We are diabolical in the sense that Schindler explains. We keep our notions of an accidental universe in one slot and we keep our notions of human dignity in another. We tear reality asunder, we divide it up, we scatter. Like the Pharisees, we say here good is bad and over there bad is good. And we don't like to talk or to think about these things. And the power of speech and public consensus is a strong power indeed. As Charles Taylor also points out, one of the main reasons that we don't confront our scattered view of reality is because we all simply accept it as an axiom, as an assumed principle, that every human being deserves dignity and respect. We all say that this is true, and since we all share this consensus, there's no need to explain why this is true. And this shared speech, it hides the lack of fit between our accidental origins and our stringent ethics. If we all agree, then there's, there's, there's no need to go any further. A great way to establish what you believe is to discuss your position with someone who disagrees with you. A horrible way of establishing what you believe is only ever to speak about it with those who agree with you. And Taylor is saying that this is what we are all doing as a society. And this, too, is just like the Pharisees. Again, they're not so much worried about what actually happened, but about what is said about what happened. They care not so much about the healing, but about the public opinion around the healing. They seek to use their words to cover up what Jesus is doing. They're using their words to scatter, to call good bad and bad good. And this brings us to the supreme irony of the passage. Yes, Jesus heals this man from physical blindness and physical muteness, but the Pharisees are working a spiritual blindness and a spiritual muteness upon themselves and upon the crowd. They can no longer speak of good as good and bad as bad, and so they can no longer see Jesus for who he truly is. And trying so hard to see through Jesus, they've lost the ability to see anything at all. As C.S. Lewis tells us, if you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. This is the much deeper and more dangerous blindness of the Pharisees, and it works through their words. Therefore, Jesus rebukes their behavior by way of a stern warning about the things that we say. 
You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus here does not just condemn their dangerous use of words, but he also makes an important connection here. He calls them a brood of vipers, and this is snake imagery. This connects what they're doing directly with the diabolical, with the devil, with the one that Jesus calls the father of lies. Jesus is connecting them with the serpent of Genesis 3, the one who led Adam and Eve away from the truth through the lie. Recall the first words of the serpent to Adam and Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, the devil here, is using his speech to call the speech of God into question. The serpent's not only speaking here against God, he's also suggesting, however subtly, that God himself has not even spoken. Did God really say this or that? Has God really actually said anything at all? And if not, who's to say what's good and evil? Who's to say what will bring life or bring death? Decide all of these things by yourself on your own terms. The serpent is using his words to scatter. And this is precisely what the Pharisees are doing. They, like the demon that Christ cast out, is working, are working the will of Satan. They're making themselves and the crowds both blind and mute, unable to speak and see the truth. They are scattering. And this brings us to what has been called the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. Jesus declares, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is this sin? And how is it that the Pharisees are on the road to committing it? Well, theologian J.I. Packer is helpful here. He writes, callousing one's conscience, callousing one's conscience by dishonest reasoning, so as to justify the denial of God's power in Christ and the rejection of his claims upon us is the formula of the unpardonable sin. Again, the Pharisees are doing their best by callous, dishonest reasoning to explain away the good works of God. An explanation that, as we have seen, eventually explains away all good. But Packer here also offers us wise pastoral counsel. He tells us, Christians who fear that they may have committed the unpardonable sin show by their very anxiety that they have not done so. If you are truly remorseful and repentant for your sin, whatever it may be, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. In fact, this sin is best understood not as a specific act, but as a hardened posture that rejects again and again and again God's good and gracious work of redemption. For instance, New Testament scholar Gary Burge, he says this of the sin, quote, It's best viewed as a total and persistent denial of God's presence in Christ. Rather than a particular act, it is a disposition of the will. 
And a great picture of this is a, is a scene from the last battle, the, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. A group of dwarves, they, they find themselves in a dark stable, and, and the great lion Aslan, the Christ figure in the book, he shows where the dwarves' calculating and suspicious and dishonest mindset has led them. Aslan sets a bountiful and sumptuous feast before them, and they eat it. But they're so hardened that they can't believe that this wonderful food and drink is anything other than what you would expect to find in a stable. And they tell one another, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. And so they drink the finest wines, but they think that they are simply drinking dirty donkey water. As Aslan explains of their situation, they have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. And this too is the position of the Pharisees. The very kingdom of God, as Jesus tells them, has come upon them. But they reject it as something worse than dirty donkey water. They deem the very kingdom of God as the kingdom of flies, of filth, of excrement, of bezelbowl. And if the Pharisees continue in this hardness, they will commit the unforgivable sin. And so the unforgivable sin is best understood as not asking for the forgiveness that's freely offered in Christ. To reject this forgiveness is to reject everything that God has done to give us, to offer us forgiveness. It's to reject all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Again, the work of Christ is the work of gathering, of uniting, of joining, of bringing together, of making whole. And it undoes the scattering of Satan. Because remember, how does Satan begin his work of scattering? By tearing asunder humanity from God. This is exactly what he does in Eden. The human without God is not whole. The human without God is scattered. The human without God cannot make sense of the world. As we have seen, the human without God is a mess of contradictions. And the very deepest contradiction of all is our relation to God. We long for God. We long for goodness. We long for meaning in a cruel world. We long for the deepest desires of our hearts to be fulfilled. We long to know that we are not mere cosmic accidents. We long for God. But if we are honest with ourselves, this is a terrifying prospect. To long for God is to long for perfect goodness. But to long for perfect goodness is to know just how short we have fallen of it. We cannot long truly for perfect goodness, for perfect justice, without acknowledging all the ways that we are not good, all the ways that we are not just. C.S. Lewis captures this dynamic well. This is a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. It's right at the heart of this matter. Lewis says, This is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all of our efforts in the long run are hopeless. 
But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day, and so our case is hopeless again. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Some people speak as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. When we come to God, we ourselves are scattered. If there is a God, then yes, we are not accidents and there is meaning in the world. But if that's true, we realize that God, who just is perfect and infinite goodness, will cast light on all the ways that we are not good. We don't even keep the ethical codes that we hurl on other people, let alone the pure ethics of a truly good God. Yes, God gives us the goodness and meaning that we long for, but in the process, we have traded meaninglessness for condemnation. Yes, now we have good and evil and right and wrong. But if God is true, perfect, and goodness, which is the only goodness worth hoping for, then, oh, no. We realize that we ourselves are in the wrong. If God is perfect goodness, infinite goodness, then his justice will be perfect. And if that's the case, we are all undone. And so we are scattered. We are scattered before God because he is both our only hope and our greatest threat. And so how can these be integrated, brought together, united, gathered? How can we be made whole and reconciled to God? Well, it's because of the work of Christ that is received by those who seek divine forgiveness. And all who truly seek forgiveness in Christ will receive it. However, again, the unforgivable sin just is to insist with a hard heart till the very end that we do not need forgiveness. The unforgivable sin is not to seek forgiveness. But it's only when we come to terms with our true position before God and acknowledge that we are scattered before him since he is both our only hope and our greatest threat, it's only then that we can truly seek and receive his forgiveness. But how does this come about? Well, God himself became human in Jesus Christ and lived the perfect life of gathering. He united every aspect of his life under the love of God and neighbor. Everything he did was wholly integrated around this love. Just as he made the demon-possessed man whole, so did Christ bring healing and wholeness everywhere he went. Never, for instance, was Christ a different man at work than at home. Never was Christ a different man with his friends than with his family. Never was Christ a different man in his hardships and in his joys. He was always, in every case, a man wholly committed to the love of God. Christ gathered everything, every aspect of his life under the banner of God's goodness. However, this wholly integrated human life took upon himself the scattering that we deserve. 
On the cross, his clothes were scattered, ripped asunder. On the cross, his flesh was scattered and ripped asunder. And even his very breath was scattered and ripped asunder. As his human soul was torn from his human body, one descending to the place of the dead and the other into the rocky tomb. But on the third day, Christ was raised in his human nature, gathered together both a body and soul, never to die again, never to be scattered again. He lived the life of gathering unto God that we are meant to live, yet he suffered the punishment that we deserve for our continual life of diabolical scattering. And so God in his perfect goodness can offer us forgiveness. Where is the perfect goodness? Where is the perfect justice that perfect goodness demands? It's fallen upon Christ. And where is the perfect love that perfect goodness demands? Well, because of Christ, it's lavished upon us. This is the gift of forgiveness that Christ freely offers. It's an offer to us, an offer to be gathered because Christ was scattered. But to reject this forgiveness is quite simply unforgivable. Yet to receive this forgiveness is to step onto the path of gathering, of joining, of bringing all things together in Christ Jesus. And one day when we ourselves are scattered, when our bodies and souls are separated at death, we can look forward to the day when Christ will gather us, body and soul, in the resurrection. And then we, like Christ, will be wholly integrated around our love for God and never to be scattered in mind or body or soul or life will be whole and full and complete. And so if we are in Christ, we have to ask ourselves, are we gathering or scattering with our words? Are we speaking as disciples of Christ or like the Pharisees? As Christ tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our faith in Christ must work outward from everything that we say. For instance, consider the words that Owen Barfield wrote about his good friend, C.S. Lewis. What Lewis thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything. Lewis, Barfield tells us, was a severely integrated man. Well, let us go and do likewise. Are we speaking in such a way that gathers all of life into the goodness of God and the forgiving work of Jesus Christ? For instance, are we ourselves using our words to confess? Because when we do, we affirm that there is such a thing as sin and such a thing as sinning against the other. Are we using our words to forgive, to affirm that there is such a thing as forgiveness, which is itself rooted in the divine forgiveness offered by Christ? Are we using our words to encourage, to affirm, to affirm that the Christian is never without hope and that God's perfect goodness is orchestrating every aspect of our lives even when we don't understand it at the time? Are we using our words to convict, to acknowledge the Holy Spirit who shows us our sin and pushes us to repentance? Are we as a church using our words to console to affirm the reality of Christ, the great high priest who has himself experienced all of the deepest miseries of this world and so can pray himself for us with the deepest compassion. In all of these forms of speech, the gospel is present. As Christ tells us, a tree is known by its fruit. 
And for all of these speech acts, they are the fruits that grow from that most wonderful root of all. God's free offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the gospel. Therefore, let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you that your kingdom is good, and this is the goodness that you call us to. And thank you, Lord, that we, without fear, can gaze upon the goodness of God, because you have taken our sin and given us your righteousness, that God is both our great hope and great love and not our threat. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.